There we are. So, if you have your Bibles, I did that last week, uh, turn in them to 1 Samuel chapter 24. 1 Samuel chapter uh, 24. Uh, this uh, is another in a continuing narrative of Saul's search for David. And good morning, uh, by the way. I am Donnie Mathis, one of the pastors here at Christ Fellowship Cherrydale. And I'm glad that you could be with us as we continue on this journey through the rise and fall of the kings. Now, thanks to Patrick for reading uh, a portion of our passage from this morning's text. And after the last few weeks, and really all of 1 Samuel at this point, I think that any notion that the Bible is boring, not interesting, or the story is a bunch of folks who've got it all figured out can be thrown in the trash where it belongs. These folks don't have anything really figured out much at all. And let's just be honest here, if you uh, were listening to what was just read and really what precipitates all that follows, uh, you know that there are a bunch of jokes that I could tell to start the message. Most of you would laugh and all of them would rightly get me in trouble with my wife. So let's just move on from what happens to start this story before I say something that's unwise at best. So in many ways, our text this morning uh, continues to emphasize several themes that we've seen over the last few weeks. David does right by Saul. Saul is a mess. David is the rightful and soon-to-be king, but God has not yet removed Saul completely. And up to this point, the chase has been going on for a while now, and God has protected David at every turn. He's been saved by a family idol wrapped in goat hair. Let's just be honest, that's a little bit strange. He's been dropped out of the window of his home by his wife, who is also Saul's daughter. He's been saved by his best friend, who also happens to be Saul's son and his supposed uh, rival. Um, but Jonathan really doesn't care about being the king. He wants to be David's friend first, and he just wants what God wants. And the Holy Spirit, I mean, let's just be, uh, this is even maybe the craziest. The Holy Spirit has created a very literal emperor has no clothes situation. This saved David again. He's been saved by an attack by the Philistines, which seems a bit strange, given that they're the enemies of Israel. But that's the way we ended last week, as they were sort of on both sides of the mountain. Saul was about to overtake David, and the Philistines invaded. And Saul's like, well, i got to stop chasing David. i got to go handle this Philistine situation. But today, tables, as they say, have turned. It's not David that's running from Saul. It's that Saul is unaware of just how dire his situation is. So this morning we're going to look at three vignettes in this chapter. And we're going to pick out some themes and then conclude with about four applications. So, when a man finds his enemy. This is the thing that Saul says, when a man finds his enemy, how does he let him escape unharmed? And this really kind of is at the heart of the problem. Saul views David as an enemy, and David views Saul as anything but. So let's start with this bizarre encounter, and we're going to begin in verses 1 through 4. So in verses 1 through 4, we see the setup of the story. 
When Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told David is in the wilderness near En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 of Israel's fit young men. Remember, David has around 600 on his side. So they're outnumbered about five to one. And went to look for David and his men in front of the rocks of wild goats, uh, probably ibexes for those of you that are more interested in zoology. And then when Saul came to the sheep pens along the road, a cave was there and he went in to relieve himself. So, here's the reality. Even when you're on the chase, when you're trying to kill your enemy, when you got to go, you got to go. So, Saul seemingly goes away from his men into the quiet of a cave to go to the restroom. And by the way, if you just wonder a bit about where this is, this is not really a, a nice lake over there. It's not uh, uh, obviously an ocean. You've got land on the other side. That's the Dead Sea. So we're down here at the, kind of the lowest point on the earth. There is only desert pretty much everywhere all around, except for here at the bottom of the picture in En Gedi. You'll notice that there is, there is green, lush land here because there are springs. So you're in the middle of the desert. What do you need? You need water. Where are you going to go? Well, where there's water. Is there water in a desert? No, but there is at the springs. And you'll notice here in the bottom uh, left uh, of the, the picture that you've got all of these rocks. So there are going to be dozens and dozens of caves in this area that have been cut out over the years by nature. So Saul goes into a cave. He's there relieving himself. And then we find out the amazing part of the story. David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. So they said to him, look, this is the day the Lord told you about. I will hand your enemy over to you so that you can do to him whatever you desire. Then David got up and secretly cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Now someone might say that in this desert region, stopping in an oasis just makes sense. And on some level it does. You have the spring here opposite the Dead Sea. You've got vegetation. You've got water. You've got everything that you need for your army. But out of all the caves in all of En Gedi, Saul walks in to David. Now, I'll just be honest, we don't know which cave it was, but I can almost promise you, if you go there on a tour, there will be one marked as David's cave. Okay? What we do know is this. It was a large cave because David's men, it seems 600 of them, or at least most of them, were back in the cave, and David and his men were so deep in the cave that they could be hidden from Saul, but still close enough to know who it was that had entered the cave to relieve himself. I don't know how. We'll leave it there. Now, I think that there are some very obvious questions that arise in the midst of this circumstance. Saul is relieving himself, and while he's relieving himself, David comes and cuts off a corner of his robe. So how is it that David sneaks up on Saul, short of being a ninja, and cut off a portion of his robe? Some theorize that Saul removed his robe to use the toilet, hence the need for privacy that he didn't have when the Spirit made him go naked and prophesy. Others wonder if he fell asleep while he's taking a bathroom break. 
It's an interesting theory, I guess. So how can we know what it was that led to this? We really don't know, other than the fact that for some reason, as Saul is relieving himself, David is able to sneak up and cut the corner of the robe off. And just in case you've never thought the Bible was funny, this rules out that bad idea. Okay? So what can we learn about this? Well, the first thing is that God providentially causes their paths to cross. Even though we're at an oasis, this does not happen unless God engineers and works the situation in Saul's bodily functions and in where David and his men are to bring these two to make their paths cross. And let's just be honest, a very weird way. But the thing about it is, when Saul is relieving himself, he is completely and totally vulnerable. He doesn't have his men. He doesn't have his, uh, his sword or his poorly used spear. He is completely vulnerable to anything that David wanted to do. And this is necessary to make a point to Saul. So the second thing we see here is that the malcontents counsel David to kill Saul. They say this is the Lord's will. This is the Lord handing him over to you to do whatever you desire to Saul. So think about this for a second and think about the comparison of David and Saul here. Saul was very easily manipulated by his men, but David here is being pushed by his malcontents to act. We've been on the run. We've been, we've been making our escape from day to day to day, and we're tired of it. You need to act, man. You are God's anointed king. You need to stop running and start fighting. This is the fulfillment of God's word to David, they say. Look, this is the day the Lord told you about. I will hand your enemy over to you so that you can do whatever you desire. You see, in their minds, God has opened a door. And you better take advantage of it because who knows if we'll ever have this shot again. But here's the problem. If we go back and look at the text of 1 Samuel... There is no prophecy like this that's ever been written down. You might assume maybe this was implied in Samuel's prophecy about David when David is anointed, but there are no words in 1 Samuel that say, David, you can do to Saul what you desire to get what God has given you. It's not there. And as my son said this week, the problem with malcontents is that they're malcontents. The malcontents just want this over. They want what they want. They're, remember, last week they were in debt. They were, they were despairing. They were, they were the dispirited of Israel, and they're wanting this to be over. So David performs a symbolic act. He acts, but not in the way they want. Remember what happened with Samuel back in chapter 15. You see, robes matter to kings. 
So back in chapter 15, notice what we have here, particularly in verses 27 uh, through 29. When Samuel turned to go, so remember, Samuel is the prophet, and Samuel has said to Saul, you're over. You haven't killed all the Amalekites. You've listened to your soldiers. You've kept the best sheep. You say it's in service to God, but God would rather you obey than sacrifice. God wants your service. God wants your obedience, not your worship if it's not in the way that he prescribes it. So Saul, quite symbolically, because his kingdom has been lost, Saul grabbed the corner of his robe and it tore. So Saul is grasping at Samuel's robe. He rips Samuel's robe and notice what Samuel says. The Lord has torn the kingship of Israel away from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. So we've got this continued comparison of Saul and David. Furthermore, the eternal one of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man who changes his mind. Notice, God's not like you, Saul. You're told to do something. You say you're going to do it, but then you change your mind and try to finagle it and shape it into obedience when it's really disobedience. And don't forget again how Jonathan in chapter 18 laid his robe down before David in an act of submission, acknowledging that David is king. But here's the interesting thing. The fourth thing that comes out of this encounter is that David experiences immediate regret. I don't know necessarily that David... He's done anything that we could obviously see is wrong. But notice his response in verses 5 through 7. Notice what is said. And this is going to sort of prepare the way for what comes later. David's conscience bothered him. Because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, and notice this is vow language. This is covenant language. This is an oath that he is taking. That He's appealing to the highest authority. The Lord is my witness. I would never do such a thing to my Lord. Notice what he still says here about Saul. My Lord. And we're going to see this over and over and over again in this passage. The Lord's, Yahweh's anointed. I will never lift my hand against him since he is again the Lord's anointed. With these words, David persuaded his men. Notice what did his men want to do? They wanted to kill Saul. He persuaded his men and he did not let them rise up against Saul. Now remember, this is one man against uh, all this group of malcontents. That's a leader. That's a king. But we need to ask ourselves a question. Why does David have this immediate regret? Well, I think it would be in our best interest to consider that for just a moment. You see, David, remember, is the anointed king of Israel. What will he not do? He's not going to attack the Lord's anointed. Compare that with Saul. That's all he wants to do. 
You see, even though David is, and we need to emphasize this, is the anointed king of Israel, he recognizes something. God alone is the giver and the taker of life. And particularly as it relates to kings, God alone has the authority to fulfill Samuel's prophecy. It's not for David to remove Saul. It's for God to do it in God's time. You say, well, how would David know that? Well, here's the second thing we need to remember. David's anointing as the king of Israel is defined primarily by his receiving of the Spirit. You see, this word anointing, this word as we see it in the New Testament is what we will have as the word, particularly when it's made into a noun, of Messiah, Christ, King. That word is anointed one. He is anointed as the king of Israel and that anointing as the king of Israel says he has, unlike the rest of the folks in the Old Testament aside from the prophets, he has the spirit of God and the spirit of God is actively convicting and bringing repentance to those in whom he dwells. You see, throughout the scriptures, the Holy Spirit convicts of sin. David is indwelt by the Holy Spirit as this anointed king of Israel. And listen to what Jesus says in John 16, 8 through 11. In talking about the coming of the Spirit, he says, When he comes, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. About sin because they do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I'm going to the Father and you will no longer see me. And about judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. You see, the Spirit throughout the Scriptures is the one who convicts of sin and calls people to repentance. And here, the Spirit convicts David of the sin that he had committed. And let's just be honest, if you're comparing it with Saul, it seems like he's done a really good job. David does not justify what he did, unlike Saul. But David has recognized something through the work of the Spirit in his life. He must not usurp the king's reign and start a civil war. That is not the way that God's kingdom is going to come. That's the way worldly kingdoms are established. Saul is going to be removed from the equation but he's only going to be removed by God. If there was civil war, there is no way that David is going to be able to unite the totality of God's people. The thing that Saul, attempting to do here in this chapter, never was able to achieve. So the second part of our passage is a bold speech. In this the end of this chapter, we have really two of the longest speeches and certainly the longest speech ever by Saul, but the, one of the longest speeches ever given by David. So this is a significant moment, a significant turning point. So let's look at the speech here for a moment. After that, David got up, went out of the cave and called to Saul. Notice, my Lord, the king, 
Notice he doesn't call him, you dirty dog that's been chasing me all over the south part of our country. He doesn't call him the one who doesn't belong on the throne. He says, my Lord, my Lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David knelt low. Notice his, his obeisance, his bowing, his prostration before the king, low with his face to the ground and paid homage. This is not someone who's trying to overthrow. This is someone who's trying to submit even when it isn't well received. David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of people who say, look, David intends to do you harm? You see, this could have happened. Saul could have left. He could have looked at his robe and said, man, I wonder what I did to tear my robe. David would have been pro pro completely protected in the cave, but David goes out to make his presence known and he humbles himself immediately before and submits to Saul. Notice how he goes on. You can see with your own eyes that the Lord handed you over to me today in the cave. Notice the Lord handed you over. Now remember last week Saul thought when, when David was in the, the town with the gates that God was handing David over to him. But in reality what's happened is that God has handed Saul over to David. Someone advised me to kill you but I took pity. Notice he's been submitting himself before Saul but he wants Saul to understand the nature of the situation. I took pity on you. I won't lift my hand against my Lord since he is the Lord's anointed. Again, my Lord, Lord's anointed. Look, my father. It's not just that there's this relationship between them as the once king and now the future king, but there's also this father-son relationship. So we've got this reality. I am saying to you, I could have killed you. But on the other hand, if you don't believe it, if you don't believe that I was in the same cave, oh, by the way, I've got the corner of your robe. Here's the evidence. I'm holding the corner of your robe in my hand. David provides clear, unequivocal evidence that he's not trying to start a civil war. He's not trying to usurp Saul's throne. This is not some revolt on par with Lenin or Mao or any other. He says, I was there. You didn't know it. I cut your robe. You were none the wiser. You could be a dead man if not for my character. He goes on, recognize that I've committed no crime or rebellion. I haven't sinned against you, even though you are hunting me down to take my life. Like, I'm a cornered, wounded animal, and I should lash out at you, but no, I'm not going to take your life, even though you're trying to kill me. And then notice what he says. May the Lord judge. He really already has. May the Lord judge between me and you, and may the Lord take vengeance on you for me. Notice, you're not getting off scot-free, Saul, but I'm going to leave it up to God. I trust God, but my hand, notice, my hand will never, and David's never is never, my hand will never be against you. He goes on, as the old proverb says, much like what Jesus says about trees and fruit, wickedness comes from wicked people. My hand will never be against you. 
Who has the king of Israel come after? Like again, he says, I'm nobody. What are you chasing after? A dead dog, a single flea. May the Lord judge and decide between you and me. May he take notice and plead my case and deliver me from you, which he is doing. So let's look at a couple of themes here. Saul is still David's king. Even though Saul thinks David's trying to overthrow him, destroy him, kill him, and destroy all of his family, Saul is still David's king. And David vows never to raise his hand against Saul, his king. So David then ultimately calls upon God to judge between them. And to be honest, from back as far as we get in chapter 15, God's already done that. He says that God has chosen, Samuel says, a neighbor who is better than you. Now, we can admit that that's a pretty low bar on some level, but still, David's character is shining through a man after God's own heart. Well, the last vignette comes in 24, 16 to 21 with a broken king. So in verse 16, in the latter part of it, Saul replies, Is that your voice, David, my son? Then Saul wept aloud and said to David, You are more righteous than I. For you have done what is good to me, though I have done what is evil to you. You yourself have told me today what good you did for me. When the Lord handed me over to you, you didn't kill me. So in a way that echoes the blindness of Eli, Saul calls out for David. Is that you? David? Is that you? And notice how his tone has changed. There's shame in his voice. Saul previously thought that the Lord was handing David over to him so that he could end David. But now he recognizes that God handed David over to Saul so that he would not. kill him. God is protecting David and his protection is gone from Saul. And then we get that line. The thing around which everything turns. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him go unharmed? It's a rhetorical question, but let's just be honest. The answer is no. When you think in worldly terms, the answer is always no. When you find your enemy, you make them pay. And then he says, may the Lord repay you with good for what you've done for me today. Now, let's just be honest, that may the Lord repay you is, is a bit of a loaded statement. You know, in fact, a few years ago, I was at a Christian bookstore here in town in the, in the gift card, in the card section, in the thank you card section. And on the front of it, it said, may the Lord repay you for what you've done. 
that could really go either way, right? Like it could be the most passive-aggressive thank you card you've ever seen, or it could actually be helpful. This is where context in the Bible is always matters. It's not may the Lord repay you for the evil you've done, which is kind of what David has said, but Saul says may the Lord repay you with the good that you've done for me today. And then notice what he says. Now, finally at last, I know for certain you will be king. You remember last week how Jonathan said, my dad knows. He won't admit it, but he knows that you're the king. And then notice he goes on to say, the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. You see, the, the, the reality is that Israel is a fractured group of 12 tribes at this point. Now, it is an interesting thing that Saul has tried to bring men from all the tribes as he's on the chase after David. But what we'll find is that this is actually going to serve David as he unites the kingdoms into one group, into one nation. These 12 divided tribes are going to be united under the reign of the rightful king. And so the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. And then he goes on to ask David to swear the thing that he's already sworn. And, and Saul's likely heard from Jonathan. We don't have it in the scriptures, but how could he not have heard? David's not going to kill all of us. So he begs David, swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. It's not... David's intention at all. He's already made a vow and he's going to stick to it just like he said he would not raise his hand against Saul. So let's see a couple of themes from Saul. Finally, Saul recognizes his sin. There's shame. There's sorrow. But as the story continues, I don't know if there's repentance. You see, there's a difference between recognizing sin and actually repenting. Saul still depends on human wisdom. If a man finds his enemy, will he let him go unharmed? As we've already pointed out, Saul says out loud what Jonathan said he already knew. Finally, at last. And he begs David to do the thing that he's already promised. And David actually keeps his word. So how should we apply what we've heard? How can we walk away? How can we take this story with very similar themes to what we've seen over the last few weeks? How can we walk out of here today and apply what we've seen in this very odd, let's just admit it, story? So here's the first thing. Depending on human wisdom from worldly counselors causes us to misunderstand who the real enemy is. Depending on, and this has been the problem all along, depending on human wisdom from worldly counselors 
who want to bring in the kingdom through the way all the other kingdoms of the world come into being causes us to misunderstand who the real enemy is. Think about even what Saul says. When a man finds his enemy, does he leave him unharmed? But notice what David said to Saul. We didn't look at it before, but look in verse 9. Why do you listen? This is the thing that David, it just, he can't get over. Why do you listen to the words of people? The words of people who say, look, David intends to harm you. David is emphasizing to Saul the thing that he's not ever been able to recognize throughout the entire arc of his story. He listens to the wrong people. David emphasizes, Saul, you've listened to bad counsel for long enough. You now have evidence right from the horse's mouth. You have it right from me that I don't intend to kill you. I'm not going to kill you. I'm making a vow that my hand will never be raised against you. Stop listening to the ones that are chirping in your ears that I'm out to get you. You see, here's the thing. People who disagree with us are not necessarily the enemy. People who hate us because we're taking a biblical stand on a cultural issue of the day, they're not the enemy either. People who agree with us on the principles but disagree with us on the process, they're not the enemy either. We have one enemy... And it's not a person made in the image of God. Our enemy is the evil one. Our enemy is Satan and his compatriots, sin and death. The ruler of this world, as Jesus said in John 14, has been defeated. He's been thrown down. And here's the reality. He wants to drag us down with him. So let's just pause for a moment and stop getting suckered into arguing with worldly means in the workplace on social media or wherever we find ourselves let's, let's be the people of God let's live as the people of God and let's recognize who the real enemy is let's do all that we can to heed what Paul says in Ephesians to speak the truth yes but not to speak the truth in worldly ways but to speak the truth in love to speak the truth because our hearts are breaking over how people made in the image of God are harming themselves in the pursuit of the good life. To speak the truth in love because we see that people are harming themselves through their pursuit of wealth and power and greed and sex. And if we don't have the ability to speak the truth in love, we need to ask God to give us that ability. To be able to see folks for who they are. To see the ravaging wreck that Satan is making of their lives. And to come to them from a place of love and not from a place of trying to win. Let's ask God to change us into the kind of people who are prepared to speak the truth in love. David speaks the truth in love for his king.
The second thing, recognizing our sin must lead to repenting of our sin. You see, David's safe play was to let Saul go. Allow Saul to just go on his merry way. But when he realized his sin, he made the sin known and he tried to make it right. Even when others around him were saying that he hadn't done enough. Think about the difference between Saul and David here. Saul was always worried about what people would think or whether or not they would like him, whether or not they would follow. And Saul made excuses and Saul acted like his disobedience was really obedience. And when all of that didn't work, he blamed others. It's this people that you gave me. David, at least in this instance, was driven by doing what was right before God and he had no concern for what anybody else thought. He had no concern for his safety. He goes out of the cave and he says, King, you're my king. I could have killed you. I didn't. And I'll never raise a sword again. So you can chase me. You can kill me. But I'm not fighting back. Third, regularly repenting of our sin prepares us to lead in the way that honors God. You see, that's what separated Saul and David as a leader. Saul recognized his sin and tried to hide it. David recognizes his sin and brings it into the light. Because when he brings it into the light, it can be forgiven. And when he brings it into the light in front of his, the men that he's leading, he can now lead them. The malcontents recognize that God's way is better than their way, hopefully. He certainly is able, as we see there in verse 7, to persuade his men to stop in their pursuit of Saul. David, because he was willing to repent, was able to say no to 600 men who wanted to end Saul. That's godly leadership. Notice what he says in verse 10. You can see with your own eyes that the Lord handed you over to me today in the cave. Someone advised me to kill you. In fact, a lot of someone's. But I took pity on you. Pity. There's sadness here. I won't lift my hand against my Lord since he is the Lord's anointed. David repents. David provides clear evidence that he's not trying to start a civil war. He simply offers peace. And the last thing that we see is this very important reality. It's only God who can hand over the anointed king to death. That's God's work. And the thing that we're going to see as we continue through 1st and 2nd Samuel and as we get into 1st and 2nd, well, 1st Kings is that every one of the kings in the line of Israel, in the line of Judah, in the line of the northern kingdom, they're going to rise, they're going to rule, and they're going to die. And their lives are going to be assessed. 
this king did what was right in the eyes of the Lord or this king did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Their kingdom has a beginning and it has an end. All of them are flawed and all of them are going to fail and all of them deserve to die. But the beauty of our story is that when Israel is destroyed, defeated, and exiled, God has made promises that, that don't change. You remember what Samuel said? God doesn't change. God doesn't... He doesn't go back on his promises. So when everything is destroyed, and there is no king in Israel, and the people are under the thumb of a foreign power... For hundreds of years, there is a king who comes. But this king is different. He's from the line of David, but he's not broken like David because he's a miracle child. He's born of a virgin. He's from David's family. He's the one that God has promised to sit on the throne of David forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And he's the one king in all the line that doesn't deserve to die. He doesn't deserve to be ended. He is perfect and pure and powerful. But the very one who doesn't deserve to be handed over by God is. He's betrayed by a close friend. He's right in the sight of God. But he dies mocked by folks who don't believe he's the king. Why does he do this? He does this so that he can gather for himself a people, a kingdom of priests to their God who will reign on the earth forever and ever and ever. You see, the only king who didn't deserve to die dies in the place of his people. Betrayed. But really ultimately handed over by God for the saving of sinners like you and me. And this morning, we're going to have a time to remember that death. The death of our king in our place. So at this time, if our uh, servers will come to hand out the elements of the Lord's Supper, we are going to remember what our king did in our place. Because you see, on the night that Jesus was handed over by God to lawless men... He gathered his disciples together in an upper room to celebrate the liberation that God was going to achieve. You see, from uh, time past, from the Exodus on, Israel had celebrated this meal yearly to remember that with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, God delivered Israel out of Egypt.
But in the midst of the brokenness and destruction of the exile, Jeremiah said that, that when God delivers his people again, they'll never talk about the exodus ever again. And as Jesus celebrates with his disciples, he's telling them that the new covenant, the new exodus is arriving. So let's ponder what Jesus is accomplishing as the elements are passed. In John chapter 6, verse 58, 
Jesus describes himself as the true bread which came down from heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. And what he's describing there is that those who take him in, who repent and believe in him, will have eternal life. And it's symbolized at this last supper when Jesus says, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. <clears throat> On that same night, our Lord took the cup and having blessed it, gave it to his disciples, saying in the same way also the cup after supper, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. But before we take it together, let's also remember a couple of other texts from the New Testament. In Hebrews 9.22, the author of Hebrews says to us, Under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So let's just take a moment to remember that it is the shed blood of Jesus that washes away our sin and removes God's wrath for our sin. But also remember what John says in 1 John 1, 7. Because you see, this drinking of the cup and eating of the bread is not just about something that's happened in the past, but continuing to walk in fellowship with Jesus. But if we walk in the light... As he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us. It continues to cleanse us from all sin. So, let us drink the cup in remembrance of what has been done and what he continues to do. The Bible says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we've done that today. And the Bible also tells us that after our Lord and his disciples ate the bread and drank from the cup, they celebrated by singing. So let's sing in worship of our King. If y'all stand... Um and continue to sing with us.